it's his staff. So, you know, when you're, when you're behind the ambulance and you see there, you go, oh, that's like a Greek god staff that I'm seeing on the back of the ambulance and, and with a snake on it. And they would have this temple and people would come in and, and they had snakes in the temple. You know, that's why the snake's going around the ride. And if people were sick, they would come in there, you know, they couldn't get healing. They would say, well, I'm going to spend the night in the temple and maybe the snakes will crawl over me. And that's like way over the edge for me. I'd rather die. I mean, I'm telling you, I hate snakes. You, you, you have no idea. You know, people are afraid of bears. I, bears don't bother me at all. Snakes? Holy smokes, man. If you ever get bit, bit I got bit by a snake. This is bad, bad stuff. And uh, they, are, they are bad business. And, and they're sneaky. You know, they hide in the grass and they're under things. You roll it over and snakes, you know, like a copperhead or a rattlesnake, they're there. They're bad news. And, and so anyway, you know, the only good snake is a dead snake. And, and uh, you know, for those of you who have pet snakes, you need counseling. So, you know, I'm just saying, I'm just saying, snakes, the devil. That's what the devil's called, the snake, the serpent. So I'll stop there. I, that was not in my notes. Um, I, just, I just thought about this thing, about this temple and snakes and, and Asclepius. So this is, this is the, the place here that we're talking about, Pergamum. So to live in Pergamum, if, if you live in Pergamum, you're going to be expected to worship the local gods. I mean, that, that's what it's like to live in the city. So if you live in the city, you're expected to worship Dionysius, Zeus, Apollo, Asclepius. And Asclepius is like your, your big calling card for your city. And, and so you are expected to do this. <clears throat> and if you don't, it's really easy for the locals to make your life miserable. They don't have to say, hey, what's wrong with you? You don't worship our gods. They don't do that at all. They would wait and press you to burn incense to Caesar. Remember last week we talked about just a little pinch? Well, if you didn't burn a pinch of incense to Caesar, you and say Caesar is Lord, then, then that, is a, that is a capital offense. So there were ways that they could make your life miserable and, and force you into this. So let's come into Revel, uh, Revelation 2, 12, um, in verses 12 and 13. And, and John writes, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you where Satan dwells. So the first thing is the battle with the culture. They have a battle with their culture in verses 12 and 13. We begin to see this. He's saying, you know, to the angel of the church, it's similar to everything we've done so far with the other two churches. He says, right, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. The, uh, the Christians in Pergamum, they were faithful. It says, you... Hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. So the Christians in Pergamum, they were true to the word of God. And when it came to biblical doctrine, they're much like Ephesus. When it came to the things of Scripture, they were true. They knew it. They were true to God. They knew their stuff. They lived in one of the most difficult situations possible, and they didn't cave in their beliefs. 
They said, you know what, this is right, this is true, this is real, this is who we are. And, and Jesus describes himself as he comes to them as the one who holds the sharp two-edged sword. So as you come into Pergamum, you're living in a fierce battle of ideas. It is the battle for the mind. When we come in to this, to this week, that's exactly what we're looking at is the battle for the mind. And, and this is what's going on with all of the different philosophical things going on, the different gods and, and so forth coming up. This is, this is where they are. So Jesus describes himself as the one who has the major two-edged sword. So this is a major urban area. It's, a, it's an intellectual center and, and the battle for the mind is, <clears throat> is fierce. Now, the city holds the power of, of Eus Gladii. So that's the power of the sword. So <clears throat> in, in, Roman, in the Roman world, only certain cities had the power of the sword. And when you come in, you would see that they would have the shield of the sword. The sword meant that they had the power of capital punishment. Not every city could put people to death, but, but some could. And Pergamum was one of them. So the sword, the two-edged sword, symbolized the power of the city. The power of the city to put people to death. And Jesus comes in and he says, I'm the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. So as they come in there, the, the, everybody knows when you talk about the sword, they know the power of the sword to put people to death. And, and so the government had sovereign power. That's, that's what the sword means is this, this government in Pergamum is sovereign. And if you come in to the book of Revelation, you remember the big theme is the sovereignty of God. God is sovereign over all things. There is nothing that is influenced or changed by God. God is sovereign. He is unaffected. He is unchanged by outside forces. God is God. He will always be God. He is unchanging. And Jesus is reminding them that he's sovereign. So this is where he's coming in. He's saying, I am sovereign. I am the one who holds the two-edged sword. In Hebrews 4.12, it says, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the vision of soul and spirit of joints and marrow and discerning the thought and intentions of the heart. So you come in and you talk about the sword, the sword, the sovereign sword of God, what it does, and it cuts right down to the quick. So their battle was over the idea of God. This is the battle, a battle going on in Pergamum. What, what is God? Who is God? Who is He? What is acceptable when it comes to worship? So in Pergamum, the battle for their mind is, what is acceptable worship? What is it? What does it look like? Who is sovereign? Who is ultimately God and in control? Is it the state or the God of all heaven and earth? Who has ultimate authority in everything going on here? Is it the proconsul in Pergamum or is it the exalted Christ? Who is the ultimate authority. And Jesus is clearly reminding the church there that all authority belongs to God. It all belongs to God, and nothing or anyone will change that. Jesus knew exactly where they lived. He said, I know where you live. I know where you dwell. I know what it's like there, and I know what's happening in your culture. I know everything that's going on around you. I know the stuff that's happening there. And sometimes, you know, we 
We, we get caught up in where we are and we think of everything going on around us and, and, and get caught up in all of the different thoughts and, and, and philosophies and, and trends and everything going on. And we forget that God knows where we are. He knows where we dwell. He knows our needs. He knew that they were faithful in the face of intense persecution unto death. Um, that's when he says, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, we don't know who, who Antipas was, but he was killed. He was martyred for his faith. He was put to death for his faith. And, and uh, the battle that we face today is much like their battle. It's a battle for the mind. The, the battle that we face today, the battle that you face today, is a battle for the mind. Now, you, you could even come in and, and say, you know, everything that's coming in media-wise, it comes from channels, and those channels have a philosophy behind them. And whatever channel it is that you watch, you got to understand that there's a philosophy behind that channel. And is that channel the channel that is bringing you the truth of God's Word, or is this something else? Because it's a battle for the mind. And if you can win the mind, you win everything. If you change the way people think, you change the culture, you change it all. You change everything. You don't have to affect their hearts. You don't have to do anything. If you can control people's minds, you can control what they do. Uh, Proverbs 23, 7 puts it this way, For as he thinks within himself, so he is. So he is. That's why there are things that we allow into our minds that are so poisonous and cause us so much grief. You see, they were bombarded from the outside with ideas that contradicted the Word of God. They were being constantly bombarded with ideas, with false worship, with false gods, with, with um, false ideas, with false understandings of reality. And they were things that were easy to see, and they were passing the test. They were passing the test. This is what Jesus said. He said, you know what? You've passed the test. You didn't deny me even when you saw Antipas murdered for his faith. You stood firm on the things that you know to be true. So we're pretty good at seeing things that outright contradict Scripture. When they come from the outside. And this is, this is what, if you come to the church in Pergamum, you're going to go, man, uh, but, but, but we know that he's, he's getting ready to lay the boom on them. He is. But what he's saying is, he's saying, look, when, when you talk about the battle on the outside, you're winning the battle on the inside. On the outside. It's the battle on the inside. It's the battle within, in verses 14 and 15, that caused them problems. And it's the same battle that we face that will cause us problems as well. When you come into verses 14 and 15, he says, but I have a few things against you. So it's interesting. First off, it said, you know what, with with the stuff that's just grossly contrary to Scripture, with the ideas that are contrary to the things of God, you pick it up really quick and you don't bow down to it. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, when you come into that, you go, you know what, what who, Balak, Balaam, Nicolaitans, what, what is all of this stuff here? What does it mean? The problem was coming from the inside, not from outsiders. 
He's saying your problems aren't coming from all the things that you're hearing, the messages on the outside. The problems are coming inside. They're inside your church. They're inside your homes. They're inside the day-to-day living that you're doing. It's, it's, in your, it's in your normal day life that's causing you problems. They're being swayed by people in the church who weren't practicing biblical living. This is what they're doing. They're, they're being swayed by people inside the congregation who aren't living life the way that Jesus has called them to live it. And it's really easy to see the problems of outsiders and speak out against them, right? It's really easy to talk about everything that's wrong in our culture. We could come in and, and talk about, you know, entertainment. We could talk about the way that people live. We could talk about our morals. We, we could go on and on and on and on about all that stuff, right? It's really easy to, to come in and, and, and talk about that stuff. But when it comes from inside... It's a whole different game when it comes from inside the church and inside the things that take place inside the congregation and the things that we've normalized that are sin. That's when the problem erupts. It's when we normalize sin within the church and then sin becomes the way that we operate and we look at it and we go, well, you know, people don't really, that's not really that big of a deal, right? Right? That's when the problem arises. And, and so <clears throat> that's a difficult thing to deal with because it's difficult to see. The sin within our walls is something that we don't see clearly because we tolerate it. So the teaching of Balaam and the Nicolaitans, it's most likely the same thing. It's most likely the same teaching. Um, one name is Greek, the other is Hebrew. Um, Nicolaitans is, is Greek. Um, Balaam is Hebrew, and they both mean conquering people. Those words both mean conquering people. So if, if you come in, what they were conquering was the minds of the people within the church, and they were conquering their minds with false teaching about two things, idolatry and sexuality. So there are two things that are coming in, idolatry and sexuality. And we could park right here and talk for weeks because these are the two issues that we deal with the most. Idolatry, and, and when I talk about idolatry, I'm not talking about little fat statues or snakes and in, in, in Stuff because we're way more sophisticated than that. Nobody in here buys that stuff. Idolatry is when we put something ahead of God, anything. Idolatry are the things, they're the things that occupy our brains and our minds and, and we invest in and we allow to take the place of God or we trust instead of God. And they were conquering the minds of the people in Pergamum with false teaching about idolatry and sexual immorality. And and these are both major issues in the first century. So as you come into the first century, these are major issues that are taking place. And and you, you think that our culture is sexually permissive. You think that our morals are messed up. Look, we're choir boys compared to them. I'm just telling you. We're, we're, we're not, we haven't, we're, we're nothing compared to the first century. Nothing. 
So when you come in and you talk about the people in Pergamum, you got to understand what's normal in their culture. Because even, even everything that, that, quote, our culture accepts, not everybody in our culture considers it normal. And most people my age and up, we really don't consider it normal. I'll just throw it out there. In their culture, it was very normal. Generations had grown up with this kind of normal. So if, if you come in and look, their, their culture makes ours look tame. And when you talk about eating meat sacrificed to idols, um, what you're talking about is celebrating a sacred feast to a pagan god. It's, it's not that they went down to the marketplace and there was some meat that was used in a religious ceremony and they didn't. No, no. What they would do is, is they would take and, and sacrifice this animal to a pagan god and, and the priest would give them a portion to take back and set, uh, share with their friends. And they would have a celebration. They would have a celebratory meal. So they were intentionally coming in here and it was a very intentional thing to participate in the feast and participating intentionally was to participate in idolatry or idol worship so they were worshiping the gods of the city and so forth the jerusalem council if you come in you go back in acts chapter 15 remember the jerusalem council um, at this time the jews who have a totally different moral ethic from the, the world around them, from the Greek world around them, the Roman world around them, the, the Hebrew people, they have this totally different ethic. They're, they're monotheists. They worship one God, and they have a sexual ethic that's totally different as well. And, and they come in. So all of a sudden, you have all of these Gentile people, all of these Greeks and Romans and, and people who are non-Jewish who are coming to faith in Christ. And you've got the, the Jewish Christians and you've got the Gentile Christians. And man, they're coming from worlds apart. And all of a sudden, there's a big blow up. And, and you know, we look at it and we go, wow, those people, they're just so prejudiced. Well, no, you've got to understand their culture. I mean, yeah, they were. But you've got to understand what, what they're coming out of. And what they're seeing and everything that's taking place there and coming in. And so at the end of it, they have this big, they have this big meeting of the apostles and Paul. And they come in and Peter and they, they begin to talk and they say, look, God has, has placed the Holy Spirit on the Gentile people. And this is undeniable. And, and Jesus has saved them and thoroughly saved them. And they are just as Christian as we are. Our cultures are worlds apart. And they came in and they said, well, look something's got to happen. And so in Acts 15, 28 and 29, it says, For as it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements. So he said, we don't expect you to be Jewish. We don't expect you to live like us, to hold our traditions and our cultures and all the stuff that we normally do. But this is what we expect, that you abstain from what's been sacrificed to idols and from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you'll do well. In other words, they were saying, you, you've got to come out of this culture. You've got to come out of it. You've got to change. And, and you can't participate in idolatry, um, and, and you can't participate in sexual immorality. So what was being taught or glossed over was that it was wrong 
to participate in the worship of idols by, by eating meat that has been sacrificed to them and then participating in sexual acts as a part of that. So this was a part of their culture. This is what they did. This was normal. It was accepted as being normal in that day. And you're going, wow, man, this is, this is way crazy bizarre. It is crazy and bizarre. It is to us. To them, it wasn't at all. It was very normal. This was normal for them. So this is where these Christian people, this is what they've grown up with. This is what they've seen their entire life. This is the way that life works in Pergamum. So eating with someone in their culture, if you come in, when you eat with someone in that culture in the ancient Near East, it meant that you were establishing a bond with them. It wasn't just you were getting lunch together because you both have to eat. You established a bond with them. And there was a relationship that was made through that meal, through participating in the meal. So to participate in the feast was to participate in spiritual idolatry and to open yourself up to the demonic. You know, wow, whoa, you just took a big leap there. No, I really didn't take a leap. Didn't take a leap at all. There's no leap here. This is just very much normal, the way their brains think. We think like Americans, and we think food is food, worship is worship, this, the, and, and everything. They, they, don't, they don't have all these different boxes. It's all coming in together, and it's one big clump that's going together. And when you have a meal, and when you invite somebody in for a meal, you have built a bond and a relationship with them, and you are sharing life together. In 1 Corinthians 10, 19, and 20, Paul wrote about this. He said, what do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. He said, look, I know that food offered, I know that idols are, are, are not real. I know that these false gods are not real. I know that this, I, I understand all the logic of it. No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. So he's saying when you're participating in their culture, you're participating with demons. You're participating with Satan. And, and you know, oh man, he's gone off the rails this morning. He is going out there into satanic stuff and everything else. Look, the whole book of Revelation is the book of the battle of Satan and Jesus, and we know who wins. But there it is. So that's where it's coming down. So he's coming in, and there's this. So this is something that we don't think about because we're sophisticated. We're sophisticated people. But the demonic is real. It's very real. You can go to places in the world right now today where it's very, very real. Look, our demonic is just dressed up and polished really well. It's dressed up polished and sophisticated and when you're talking about food sacrifice to idols and practicing sexual immorality you're talking about anything outside anything outside of the bonds of one man and one woman united together in a covenant before God for life. Anything 
that initiates outside of that is sexual immorality. Anything. Anything. Any little thing. This is what God is saying. That's what, when, when you talk about that word, you know, fornication, if you call somebody a fornicator today, people will just look at you kind of like, what is that? You know what that is? That's any sexual activity outside of marriage between one man and one woman. Anything. Anything. And it'll always be wrong. Always. Now let's go to Pergamum. Let's go to Pergamum. Let's leave America for a minute. Let's go back to Pergamum. One of their writers, one of their ancient writers wrote this. Here's what they wrote. We have prostitutes for the sake of pleasure. We have concubines for the sake of daily cohabitation. We have wives for the purpose of having children legitimately and for having a faithful guardian of our household affairs. Wow, ladies, how many of you would want to marry one of those guys? Nobody. But that was normal. That was their normal view. That's the culture they came out of. So it was difficult to navigate this completely new sexual ethic. It was hard. I mean, this is the only thing that you've ever known. And Jesus was telling them to deal with the sin inside the church or he's going to do it for them. You deal with it or I will deal with it. And I am the one who holds the sharp two-edged sword. It ain't wrong, baby. It's me. It's me. He's saying deal with the sin inside your house. You see, their culture was like ours. Their culture believed that as long as no one gets hurt, it's fine. Their culture believed that the body and the soul were separate things, and and the body really, it's just going to disappear anyway, so it doesn't really matter. Do whatever you want. Whatever makes your body feel good, it's fine, because you're going to go off into into the soul land later on. The problem is, is that we're not a body and a soul. We're a body. We are a person. And these two things go together. Your person, your physical, and and your spiritual are one. They are a unit. We're not bifurcated and stuck out in these different places. We are one. We are one. And what happens to us physically, specifically in, in the sexual arena, affects all of us. Every aspect of us. So, as we come in and, and we look at this, we have to look that, that our outer and inner selves are one. And we can't impact one without impacting the other. And you think, well... I'm not sure about that. Because philosophically, that's, that's way off from everything I've ever heard. 
You know, I've heard body, soul, spirit, and all this other blah, 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 and hocus pocus and, and, and baloney. And I don't understand. I need to go back and think like a Hebrew and understand that I'm one. Just like there's one God, there's one me. And I'm not broken into little pieces. I'm one. My heart, my soul, my flesh, that's me. And what happens to me affects me deeply. And in the arena of sexual immorality, it's even more intense. And this is what Jesus is saying to this church, and this is what is being said to us in our culture today. Our sexuality impacts the very essence of who we are. And you can't separate this out into a physical and a spiritual. It's one. I'll give you one example of it. 2 Samuel chapter 13 is the story of two brothers and a sister. In 2 Samuel chapter 13, you got the story of two brothers and a sister. Amnon, Absalom, and Tamar. Amnon and Absalom are half-brothers. They're the sons of David. This is after, by the way, after David has his affair with Bathsheba. So the ball started roll already a long time ago in the family, and things have gone off the rails. Amnon decides that he's in love with his sister Tamar. And, and he pines away for her. I mean, he is just, he, he cannot get over his sister. And finally, his buddy says, look, you need to suck it up. You're the king's son. Here's what you do. And so he cooks up this, this plan to get him and her alone together. And he loves her. I mean, his love for her is intense. So she comes into the room and he says, I'm sick. I need her to bake me some bread and feed me. So she comes. He's a sister, unsuspecting, comes in. He clears everybody out and he violates her. And then he hates her with an intensity greater than the love with which he loved her. Why is that? Why? I mean, if the body and the soul are separate, why would that be? And then Tamar rips her robes, the virgin daughter of the king who's been violated. Her brother Absalom tells her, don't let this bother you. Go back to my house and live. And he steeps with hatred and anger towards his brother, and ultimately he kills his brother. And it says that Tamar lived as a desolate, broken woman. Why? I mean, if if we're just compartmentalized, body and the body's nothing and whatever, it's because we're not. Because when, when people are affected in this way, it's huge. It impacts us. And this is what Jesus is saying. He's saying, look, get it together, folks. Get it together. 
You can't live like that. You can't live like that. So we have this battle with the culture. That's, that's the easy one. That's easy. Look, nobody in the room has a problem with culture. We understand the culture. We know what's wrong, and, and we can pick it out. Jeek, 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 jeek. We're really good at judging the culture. We're bad at judging ourselves. We're really bad at judging ourselves. You know, well, well, look, we don't have that weird stuff going on. People aren't, you know, violating their sisters in our church and stuff. Or if they are, it's, keep, it's been hidden very, very well. And if it is happening, it shouldn't be happening. Somebody needs to know about it. But. We have people who watch pornography every day. Yeah. Every single day. Men and women. You say, how do you know that? <laughs> That's a no-brainer, man. Look, you sit at my desk long enough, you get... You, I, if you talk to, like, a student minister on a college campus... You know what they'll tell you their first assumption is? Every man who comes in to talk to them is addicted to pornography. Not most, every. It's, it's, it's out there. Why? Because we look at it and we go, well, it's, it's, it's not a big deal. It's our choice. And what Jesus said is, I'm coming to you with the sword. I'm coming to you with the sword. Because it's not. And you need to clean up your heart. Or you say, well, you know, I don't have that issue. That's, that's not a problem for me. Well, when you flip on the TV at night and you watch your favorite two actors and the love story's going on, and, and, you know, you just, you just wonder, are they ever going to get together? I mean, you know, everything just seems to be going wrong. And, and he and her, they're perfect for each other. They just, they just need, I mean, it's just a perfect Hallmark moment. But it's not a Hallmark movie. And all of a sudden, the lights go down. And they go to the room together. And you're like, oh, finally. No, it's not all finally. They're fornicating. It's not good for them. It's not good for their souls. It's not good for their bodies. It's not good for their heart. It's not good because that's not the way God made us. It's not the way that God made us. And look, no, we are not like Pergamum. We, we haven't fallen to that depth yet. But if you look at Romans chapter 1, in Romans chapter 1, God says, if they, they denied me, and I just let them go off to their lusts. And I let them wallow in it. And their men desired men, and their women did things with women that were unnatural. And, and that's where it goes. It, it just starts with a little toe in the water. It starts when we think that God's plan is, is not a big deal. You see, we have to hold fast to God's plan for marriage and for intimacy. We have to hold fast to that, folks. We have to hold, 
hold firmly to that. Regardless of what our culture tells us. Because sex outside of marriage is sin. And the reason it's sin is because it causes us harm. Because emotionally we're bound up with a person. And you don't unemotionally bind. You don't undo that. It's kind of like once you scramble the egg, you don't put it back together again. And then the final thing in verses 16 and 17, you say, man, is he going to ever get past that? Yeah, we're past it, I think. Verses 16 and 17, you got the battle with the culture, you got the battle within, and you got the battle for truth. The final thing in verses 16 and 17, he says, therefore, repent. Therefore, repent. Now look, if you think Jesus is tolerant and loving and and sweet baby Jesus, he is the most intolerant God that has ever been or ever will be. He is totally intolerant of sin. Don't ever think that Jesus loves sin. He hates sin. He hates it. He despises it. And he will do anything, anything to root the sin out of my life or the sin out of your life. He will go to any extreme for that. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. You see, it's the battle for truth. It is the battle for truth. What he says is, this is what you got to do. Repent. 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 That word is a simple word. It means to about face, to turn from sin and turn to Jesus. It means to change the way you think. It means to change the stuff in here. It's called winning the battle of the mind. Jesus is absolutely intolerant when it comes to sin because sin enslaves us, but he sets us free. So to be a follower of Jesus, you know, you go, well, you know, we're intolerant people. Look, tolerance is way overrated. It's way overrated. There's got to be, there's got to be a line in the sand between right and wrong. There's just got to be. Otherwise, anything goes. It's might makes right. And Jesus is absolutely intolerant when it comes to sin. You know why? Because sin enslaves us. You know why? Because Jesus loves us too much. To leave us like we are. It's because Jesus died on a cross and sucked in the cesspool of our sin. My sin. Mine was enough to make him say, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Just mine. Not to mention the sins of the world. He's absolutely intolerant when it comes to sin. You know why? Because it enslaves us, 
But Jesus came to set us free. He came to set us free. We can't be set free by a God who's tolerant of anything our culture decides is okay. It can't be. It doesn't work that way. And that freedom that He offers to us is incredible. It's incredible. Look, when, when you've been in bondage to whatever it might be, whatever it is that you've been in bondage to, when you've been set free, it's just like the weight of the world comes off your shoulders, right? Maybe it's fear. Maybe it's an addiction. Maybe it's anger, hatred, strife. And when Jesus sets you free, it's incredible. It's just like this, the weight of the world comes off and, and it brings human flourishing. You see, this is what, this is what when it comes about, you see all, all of this stuff that's contrary to God, contrary to the Word of God, contrary to the plans and purposes that He has for us, contrary to the way that He made us, it doesn't lead to human flourishing. But when we walk with Christ, it sets us free. And leads to human flourishing. Because Jesus said the truth will set us free. Jesus said the truth will set you free. In John 8, 31 and 32, says Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, let's just stop right there for a minute. Abide. Abide. That means live in it. That means that, 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 that my word is oozing out of you and oozing out of your life and the way that you live. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And you know who the truth is? The truth is Jesus. Jesus said, I am the truth. I am the way and the truth and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. You see, so, so as, as we come in here, Jesus said the truth will set us free. So Jesus is telling them, and he's telling us, both of them. He's telling them, he's telling them that day, for that time, for what's going on, a word for them today, and a word for us today. You know what he's saying? Quit eating at the table with lesser gods. Quit eating at the table of lesser gods. He says, come to me and eat the bread of heaven. He says, come to me, I'll give you the manna. The hidden manna. And I'll give you a white stone with your name on it. With a new name on it. That no one knows except the one who receives it. You see, he's telling us to eat the bread of heaven as we walk with him through this life. And into his presence. This is where he's inviting us. In Isaiah 55, 2, it goes back and says, Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? And your labor for that which does not satisfy. Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. So Jesus just said, don't, don't chase after other gods. Just come to me and, and you're going to eat rich food. Stuff that when you eat it, you're just totally sated. I mean, you're just... Mm. 
it's like when you sit back from the Thanksgiving table, you know, coming up in about three weeks, and you just have a little bit of everything on there, and it's like, oh, this is just so good. He's saying, that's what it's like to be with me. You're just always satisfied. Jesus tells us to overcome and, and, and to trust him. And he will give us the hidden manna and a white stone with a new name written on it. In Isaiah 62, 2, it says, The nations shall, shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory, and you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give you. Now, there are several different takes on this white stone. And, and you can't really go, oh, it's this one, this one, this one, because we don't really know exactly what this white stone is. But, but there are a couple of things that, that um, as, as we look, there are like nine or ten different looks at it. But one is when there was a trial, the jurors would be given a white stone and a black stone. And a white stone would be innocent. So you're given a white stone that says you're innocent with your name on it, a new name in heaven. Maybe it's that. Maybe it was a stone that was broken in two when two friends would part and they would write the name of the other on it so that they would be reminded that this relationship cannot be broken. It, it, it may be, you may be apart, but you'll never be separated. Maybe... Maybe as, as we come in, it, it, it was this stone that was given to the victor of a game. And it gave him entrance, unfettered entrance into the games. Because he was a winner in the past. He was in the Hall of Fame. It's like the Hall of Fame football player that gets to go wherever he wants to go, any stadium, watch any game. Maybe it was, we don't really know. What we do know is that he knows us and we know him. That's what we know. The white stone means that he knows you and you know him. That's what he's saying. And he promises to work in us. And our role is to constantly evaluate everything through his word. That, that's, that's where it's coming down. And that leads to a fulfilling life full of joy and purpose. So as we come in and look at it, <clears throat> here's what Jesus is saying to the church in Pergamum. You know, we, we look at these churches and we go, man, these people are messed up. Now they're just like us. They're just like us. They're just like the people we live with. They're just like the things that are going on. There's nothing new under the sun. Humanity has not changed through centuries. It's all the same. We're sinful, broken people in need of a Savior. And we can look at every problem out there, and we can rant and rave and, and go on and on and on and, and battle with the culture. Or we can instead... Put our heads straight forward and follow Christ. And watch him do what only he can do. Because that's the promise that he makes. And he'll help us. You know, he'll help you. Whatever your addiction is, whatever it is, whatever the sin is, that you just go back there and you can't stop going back there. And, and it eats at you. And it shames you. And it hurts, and you, you can't talk about it to anybody because if you do, 
you'll feel exposed and like you're unworthy. That's a terrible, dark place to be. And you know what Jesus said? He said, come out of the darkness and step into the light. Deal with it straight on and follow me. And what he promises is, he doesn't say, you know what? Once you're, once you're exposed and once you're found out, he doesn't say you're going to be thrown on the trash heap. No, 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 no. He said, no, that's not what's going to happen at all. He said, I'm going to give you a white stone and some of the hidden manna. That's what's going to happen. That's what it's going to look like. That's what it's going to be. Because that's the hope of the gospel. The hope of the gospel is the grace of God. The hope of the gospel is the fact that we do serve an intolerant God, a God who cannot tolerate sin. And he came and he died for our sin. And he took our sin on the cross. And he carried it. And he paid the penalty for that. And he offers us his righteousness. And he says, you know what? I'll take all of your brokenness and all of your sin, and I will wash it, and I will make you white as snow. And the sin that you hid and the stuff that you kept in the dark, I'll set you free. Because Jesus said, if you're truly my disciples, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And whoever the Son set free shall be free indeed. Those are the words of Jesus. And that's the words of Jesus that he wrote to this church. That's the word of Jesus to us today because it hasn't changed. It's not going to change. And he's going to be the same. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he offers every single one of us a fresh start. So I want to tell you something. If you think that that you've got something going on in your life today that, that you wouldn't want a soul to know about, and it's just eating you up alive, I want to tell you something. You need to turn it over to Jesus. You need to turn it over to Jesus and ask him to help you. Because he knows it, he sees it, he understands it, and he paid the penalty for it. And he will give you a fresh start. And all of that stuff, when you talk about mind, body, soul, and spirit and being inseparable and it's there forever, well, the di- one thing is, is that when Jesus sets us free, he sets us free. He does set us free from the past. He does give us a new start. He does give us a fresh beginning. He does give us a new heart, a new understanding, a new name, a new hope, and a new future. That's the hope of the gospel. It's not that we're damaged goods and and we're kind of okay. Jesus said, I'll make you new again. That's the good news. That's that's what it is. So I I just want to be really clear. Yeah, Jesus is intolerant of sin. He's intolerant of sin because he, he hates sin. And he hates sin because sin robs us of life. It robs us of our dignity and it robs us of what he created us to be. But he loves us. And he wants us to be set free. And that happens when we repent. Repent. And that word means to change. And you've got to make the change. So I want to ask you today, every single one of us in here, we have stuff that we struggle with. Are you going to turn from it and turn to Jesus? Because he is a God who will judge sin hands down. He will judge sin.
There's no getting around it. There's, there's nothing to it. The language he uses is very clear. And the love that he offers to us is extravagant. It's extravagant beyond anything we could ever experience. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning confessing our sin. Thanks to the youth for the great job. Always excited to see our young people plugged in and serving and being a part of what God's doing in our church. We're going to be in Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17 today. So uh, go ahead and turn there. And, and while you do, I want to mention we're going to be doing our uh, shoebox thing next Sunday. I think it is Sunday afternoon, right after the second service. I want to encourage you to participate in that great opportunity we have to share the gospel with people. Um, so as you're finding Revelation 2, I want to talk a little bit about Pergamum. It's a church that we're going to be talking about today. So Pergamum was a political and religious center. So if you came into the city of Pergamum and all the other cities, but that was the central location for it. They had a massive library there with over 200,000 parchments. So, you know, we don't think of a, a, you know, a library with 200,000 volumes. That's probably not really big today. Um, it's, it's big, but it's not, not extravagant. And, and if you start talking about parchments that are handwritten, that's a whole lot of books. That's a lot of stuff there. And they had over 200,000 thousand there. Um, they were had temples and altars and shrines to deuce, to deuce, Zeus, deuce, I'm doubling him up, um, to Zeus, to um, Dionysius, Athena, and Asclepius, and Asclepius is the healing god. So um, a large part of the, the um, city and the temple were dedicated to the healing arts. So this was the big thing. Asclepius was the big one there. And, I, you know, you probably know Asclepius without even realizing it. Like I was behind an ambulance a day or two ago. And, and on the back, they have the staff of Asclepius there. Asclepius was the, it's the staff with the snake wrapped around it. That's the healing god. Um, so as you come in and, and you see that, that symbol, it's, it's, um, you'll see it you know, in medical stuff or whatever. And it goes back to, to the Greeks and, and to this, this, um, the healing arts and coming back there. So in this temple they had to the healing arts in, in Pergamum, just, uh, just to get off on a little tangent here, to have a little fun, is, is in this temple, if you would go to get healed, you know, you, you were sick and nobody else could fix anything, you could go to, to the temple of Asclepius and, and you could sleep in there in the dark and the snakes would crawl over you. And, and maybe that would make you well. And I don't know about you, but that would like, I would rather die. I would rather die than be in a room with snakes. And I mean, you know what, you know, you know what the best snake is? It's a dead snake. I mean, there are no good snakes. I am, I'm just telling you, when, when we go to Genesis chapter 3 and we see the serpent and the devil is a snake, that just tells me that they are the devil reptile. And they are no good. They're not good for anything. I've been bit by one. It is no fun. And I don't like them. People are worried about bears. Bears don't worry me at all. You can see bears. Snakes, they're sneaky. They hide in the grass and they're nasty and they're vile and they're evil. I knew it. We can close in prayer now and go home. <laughs> we got it. 
Yes. No. I mean, that is, is um, so this is what Pergamum was like, though. This is, you know, and the snakes were tame. I read, you know, they had tame snakes. How do you tame a snake? You can't, can't tame no stupid snake. That's just ridiculous. Um, but to live in Pergamum would mean worshiping the local gods. It really would. It would mean that you would worship Asclepius. You would worship Zeus. You would worship Dionysius. You would worship Apollo. And, and you would worship them first. And then you would worship the emperor as well, because that was a part of it. It was a part of being there. And if you offended the locals by not worshiping their gods, you come into their city and you don't worship their gods and you don't participate, they're going to crank up the heat on you. And they're going to get you over to the temple to the emperor. And if you don't burn incense to the emperor and say Caesar is Lord, they'll get you put to death. I mean, it's, it's serious. This is serious business. So it's, if you come into Pergamum, you got to understand a little bit of the background of it. We'll get back into it some more. But, but this is the battle for the mind. When we talk about Pergamum, Pergamum is the battle for the mind. So it's an important battle, and it's one that's really relevant to us today as we talk about the battle for the mind. The first thing in verses 12 and 13, he says, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name. And you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. So, first we have the battle with the culture. There's the ba- this is the battle with the culture. Jesus is telling him, I know where you dwell. I know what's going on there. I know what it's like. And I know that you're battling the stuff there. The Christians in Pergamum, they were true to the word of God. You, you may look, you know, you read, you read a little bit ahead and go, holy cow, these people were messed up. No, these, these people were true to the Word of God. They understood biblical doctrine, um, just like the people um, in Ephesus did. When it, when it came to doctrine, they understood that. They were much like the church at Ephesus. They knew their stuff. They knew it. They understood it. They lived in one of the most difficult situations possible, and they didn't cave in and change their beliefs. He says in verse 13, he says, look, you hold fast my name. You did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. He said, look, you watched one of your own die for his faith, and you've still stood firm. You've still declared my name. You've still proclaimed that you're a follower of Jesus. So, so they've got this. I mean, they, they understand that. And they lived in one of the most difficult situations possible. And they didn't change their beliefs to, to fit in, in in that regard. And so Jesus comes in and he describes himself as the one who has the sharp, two-edged sword. And so as you come in, what Jesus is saying is you're living in a fierce battle of ideas. This is a fierce battle, and I'm coming in with the sword, and, and they are looking in this area, and the battle for the mind, it's, it's really fierce. So as you come in and we talk about this sword, um, Jesus isn't coming in and saying, I'm going to fight the battle for you. In that regard, that's not the sword. The sword was also the emblem with the city. So if you come in, there were a few Roman cities that were sovereign. It was a sovereign Roman city. They had the power of the sword. The city of Pergamum had the power of the sword. In other words, they had the power to execute people. 
They didn't have to send people off to Rome or to another city, to another jurisdiction. They held that power. They had the power of the sword. And the government had sovereign power to exercise capital punishment as they saw fit. So Jesus is reminding them. He's saying, you know what? The city of Pergamum, they feel like they're sovereign. They feel like they've got power. They feel like they've got this and, and everything else. He's going to say, you know, you know what? I'm the one who holds the sword. I'm the one who's sovereign. Remember, we come back and we look at the book of Revelation. One of the themes, or really the big theme in Revelation, is that God is sovereign. Jesus is sovereign over all things. He is not changed. He is not moved. He is not going to budge. He is going to be God. He always has been God. He will always been true to himself. And he will always been, be faithful to his word. So as we come in and we look at this sword, Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So as we come in and we look, he's saying, I am the God who holds the sword. I have this sharp sword. And the battle in Pergamum is the battle over the idea of God. What is God? Who is God? What does he look like? What's acceptable for worship? What is acceptable worship? What does it look like? Who is sovereign? Who is the ultimate God? Um, Is it the state or is it the God of heaven and all creation? To whom will we bow? Who has the ultimate authority? The proconsul or the exalted Jesus at the right hand of God? Um, So Jesus was clearly reminding his church that all authority belongs to God. When he comes in here, he's saying, look, all authority belongs to God, and nothing anyone does is going to change that. And Jesus knew exactly where they lived. He says, I know where you dwell. I know what it's like. I know what you're going through. And that's what he says to us today. He knows everything about it. He knows what's happening in our culture, just like he knew what's happening in their culture. He knew what it was like to live as a Christian in, in their culture and what it's like to be here. And he knew that they were faithful in the face of intense persecution unto death, And the battle that we come in and we face today, it's also a battle of the mind. The battle that we face is the battle of the mind. We're not battling a physical battle out there. We're battling a a battle that's a battle of the mind. Because if you can control the way people think, you can control them. You control the mind, you, you win the game. For instance, if, if you come in, everything that you come in, media comes in, it all has an agenda with it. All media has an it doesn't matter whether it's on the left or the right or the middle or anywhere else, all media has a purpose, and that purpose is to win your mind, is to win the battle for the mind. That's why it's important whenever you flip something on or read something that you look at it through the Word of God. That's living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing as far as the vision of soul and spirit, both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. You might agree with some of it. You might disagree with some of it. But, but when you filter it through the Word of God, that's your choice. That's your choice right there. It's according to the Word of God. So the battle that we face today is an intense battle for the mind. And if you come in, if you, if you, if you control the mind, you control it all. In Proverbs 23, 7, it says, For as he thinks within himself, so he is. The way that we think defines what we do. It defines who we are. So if, if you come in and, and you look, here's what's happening in Pergamum. In Pergamum, they're being bombarded from the outside with ideas that contradicted the Word of God. This is what's happening. 
And it's easy to see. I mean, for us, there's a lot of stuff that we look at in our culture and we go, you know what? This, this may be where our culture is, but we know it's wrong. We know that it's not according to the Word of God. And it's really easy inside the church to click those things off and to point out everything that's wrong around us. And I'm not going to spend any time doing that because that's easy. That's shooting ducks on a pond. Because we're good at seeing things that contradict Scripture coming from the outside. The problem is, it's not the battle with the culture, it's the battle within. It's the battle within that's the problem. In verses 14 and 15, he moves from the battle on the outside with the culture to the battle within. And he says, but I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they may, might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. So it's the battle within. He's saying, look, you're, you're doing good when you're fighting with the stuff on the outside, but it's on the inside. You have some stuff inside that goes on inside of your church, inside of your congregation, inside of, of my people that, that you're just glossing over. As a matter of fact, it's become so normal that you don't even notice it. You don't even think about it. You're, you're not thinking straight. And, and the problem was coming from the inside, not from the outside. They were being swayed by people in the church who weren't practicing biblical living. They're saying, look, there are people in the church who have stepped outside of biblical truth and, and you're, you've, you've watched it for so long that you just ignore it. It's, it's those things that, that we practice as Christians that, that we, we kind of know they're not right, but we think, ah, it's not that big of a deal. It's not that big of a deal. And, and we just move on, or we look and we say, you know, we just, that's just, that's just way, way over the top. And so it's really easy to look on the outside and speak out against it. But when it comes to the inside, that's a whole different ball game. That is a whole different ball of wax. When we start doing that, that's much more difficult to see, and it's much more difficult to address. Because now we're not addressing outsiders, we're addressing, we're addressing one another. And we're pointing out the things in our own lives that need to change. So as you come in and you talk about, you got to say, well, Balaam and the Nicolaitans, what in the world is it? And, and what's, what's the thing? It's probably the same thing. They probably did the same thing. The name, one name is Hebrew, one is Greek, and they both mean conquering people. Balaam means conquering people. Nicolaitans means conquering people. These are people, that, conquering people. And what are they conquering? They're conquering the minds of the people, and they're conquering their, um, their actions and so forth. So as we come in, they were conquering their minds with false teachings about idolatry and, and sexual immorality. So <clears throat> these are both major issues in the first century as we come in, and we'll talk about that in a moment or two. But these are the things that, that um, they are teaching, and they're conquering their minds in these areas. And <clears throat> if you think that our culture is sexually permissive, we're Victorian compared to them. Look, our culture has got nothing on the first century A.D. The first century A.D., was as crazy and wild. The stuff you look at and go, seriously, people really did that? Yeah, they did. 
And, and so if you come in and you study, their culture makes ours look tame. In that, and then eating meat sacrificed to idols, <clears throat> you know, we look at that and we think idols, you know, that, wow, that is so, that is so old. No, it's, 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 it's going on today. There's still idolatry that goes on today. It goes on here in our own church. Um, we all have our idols. It's anything that we place ahead of God. Anything that I put ahead of God, anything that I allow to take the place of God, anything that I invest my heart in other than God, I mean, it it can all become an idol. Anything can become an idol really easily. But eating meat sacrificed to idols refers to celebrating a a sacred feast to a pagan god. And, and so they were celebrating a sacred feast, say, to Zeus or Asclepius or Apollo or Dionysius. And, and they were coming in, and, and it wasn't just some meat that had questionable origins. It wasn't that they went to the grocery store or the market, and they bought meat and said, hey, I need to know the history of this meat. That didn't really matter. And, and if you come in the New Testament and say, look, you just eat your meat that you got. Don't ask questions about it. Just eat it. You know, you, you can't go to the store and ask where this come from every time you get a piece of meat. You've got to trust that the meat's safe and you eat it. That, that, that's not the issue. It was intentional, and it was participating in the feast was, that is idol worship. So as you come in, this was a common thing. It was a common practice in their day. Idolatry was a really common issue. And if you come in, and you come into the first century A.D., Here's what happens. You have the Jewish people. They are monotheists. They, they serve one God, Yahweh, the God of Israel, the, God, the same God that we worship. They, wor- they worshiped one, and they practiced, a, they had a sexual practice that was monogamy. They, they practiced, <clears throat> uh, this, this was their ethic. You go outside of that, everybody in the rest of the world, they looked at them like, man, these people are so weird. They got one God and one woman. And, and that's just totally weird to the Greek world because that's not the way that they lived. That is not how they did. And so as they would come in and, and, and do these things, that the, the, these people all of a sudden, when we're talking about Pergamum, we're talking about Greeks. We're not talking about Jews. We're talking about Greeks. And this was a big rift. If you go into the book of Acts and you come in there, when, when the Gentile people, when the Greek people or the Roman people, anybody who's not a Jew is called a Gentile, um, all the people outside in the world, when they came to Christ, they had, they had sexual practices that were abhorrent to the Jewish people. They had um, idolatry. They worshipped multiple gods. That was abhorrent to the Jewish people. They celebrated this. They, they had these feasts and so forth. And, and so they have the Jewish, the Jerusalem council and they come in and, and Peter and Paul, they come in and go, look, these people have come to know Christ and the Holy Spirit has dwelled upon them and they have been received into the kingdom of God. And, and we can't we can't negate that. We have to understand that we are all one people with them. And so they send them off with this letter in Acts 15, 28, 29. It says, For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements. And here's what, here's what they said. And it really just deals with their culture. This is how they grew up. It says, You abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. And in other words, they're saying you, you got to change the way that you thought. 
Your thinking has to change. And, and so what was being taught or glossed over was that it was wrong to participate in the worship of idols by eating the meat sacrificed to them. Which, by the way, if you wanted to, to function, we'll talk more about this next week when we go on to the next city. But um, <clears throat> we come in, the, the thing about it was, was if you wanted to participate in business and in society and everything else, you really needed to participate in this stuff. But when you did... What's happening is when you, when you go to the table, this is totally foreign to us. It doesn't make sense. But they would go and they would have a sacrifice to an idol. So they'd take a goat or a sheep or whatever it was that they were sacrificing. They'd take it. They'd make this sacrifice. The priest, the pagan priest, would give them this meat back. And they would go and have a feast with their friends to participate in the worship of the idol. So as they come in to do that, um, it, it's a huge deal because when you come in in the first century AD, it's not like if you know somebody says, hey, can you have lunch with me? I'll go, yeah, sure. I'm going to have lunch with them because they want to talk to me about something. Uh, there's, there's something, you know, they, or maybe somebody says, you know, I just want to get together. But typically, um, if, if you go and you have lunch, you know, somebody, they have something they need to ask about or talk to you, talk with you about or whatever. That's not the way they did lunch. When you sat down for a meal with someone, that was saying we have a relationship together. We're participating in something together. We're participating in life together. We're joining together. It was an intimate thing. It was much more than just having a meal and, and discussing a few things. There was a bond there or a relationship. And to participate in the feast was to, was to participate in spiritual idolatry and open yourself up to the demonic you said, whoa, you just took a quantum leap there, man. We're going from there to demonic? I mean, we are Baptists, and we don't do demonic. Yeah, they're demons. Trust me, the book of Revelation, it is like the demon book in the Gospel of Mark. If you want to, you want to see demons, Jesus was the most happening demon-casting-out dude on the planet. I mean, he was immediately, he was casting out demons left and right. We just read past that and go on. But, but what he's saying is, is you're participating in the demonic. And we're very sophisticated people, so our demons are different. You, know, you might hear the demons in the bottle or something along that line. You know, it's something that's possessing and holding you. Well, it really is a demon, right? It's just the way the demon's getting to you. So our demons are a little bit different than their demons, but we got our demons, and they're there, and the demonic is there, and it's very real. In 1 Corinthians 10, 19, and 20, Paul said this. He said, what do I imply then, that food offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No. Those false gods are no gods at all, and, and their food offered to idols, it's nothing, because it's offered to nothing. No. I imply what the pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, it's not that it means anything. Your logic is there, but your reality is wrong. When you do this because of what it means, because of what it means to them and everything else, you are participating in the demonic. So this is what Jesus is saying. He's saying you're participating in demonic stuff and you shouldn't be doing it. That's something that we don't think about because we're sophisticated. So we come in there and we look at that and then we come in on the, on the sexual thing and practicing sexual immorality and, and we, um, we, we don't see that clearly either. 
But what the scriptures teach clearly is that a sexual relationship outside of the bonds of one man and one woman joined together in covenant is wrong. It's just sin. It's clear. I mean, it's just clear, crystal, crystal clear in the scriptures. And it'll always be wrong. It'll never be right. No matter how much we want to gloss it over, lift it up, or you know anything else, it just won't. The Bible will never, ever be able to be twisted into that. And here's what's happening in Pergamum. Here's one of their writers. This is one of the writers, the, the, the writers of the day in the first century A.D. in Pergamum. Here's what he wrote. We have prostitutes for the sake of pleasure. We have concubines for the sake of daily cohabitation. We have wives for the purpose of having children legitimately and for having a faithful guardian of our household affairs. Let that sink in a minute. Ladies, how would you like to live in that society? Not at all. Because you see, in Scripture, male and female are both of equal worth in the eyes of God. They're both created in the image of God. Together, we reflect the image of God. We're of equal value, equal worth, equal dignity. To be male is, is to be as God created one. To be female is to be as God created one. And they're both good. But in this culture, and you come out of this culture, it's really difficult. It's really, really difficult. You've got to understand, if you're a Christian in Pergamum, this is a big life change. Something that you've grown up with, being normal. I mean, what, what, what you see is normal. And by the way, um, you know, for me, at my age, there's a lot of stuff in our culture I look at and go, that's not normal. It ain't never going to be normal. But for people who are 30 years old and down, it's just normal. It's just normal. Maybe people even older. Why? Why is that? It's because you see it all the time. You just watch. You see, it's in the media, it's in, it's in entertainment, it's you know, everywhere there, and you've got this sexual ethic, and you look at this ethic, and, and it's being normalized. And Jesus was telling them, here's what Jesus is saying. I have a few things against you. And he's telling them, you need to deal with the sin inside the church. You need to deal with it. You need to deal with the sin in your home. You need to deal with the sin in your heart. And if you don't, I will. If you don't, I will. You see, they really lived in a culture much like ours. As a matter of fact, we think a lot like we're Greco, Greco, Greco-Roman thinkers. We're Western thinkers. So we think like this. We think of the body and the soul as being two separate things. And, and we think, you know, the body is going to perish and it's going to go away and it doesn't really matter what happens to the body is immaterial because what really matters is what's on the inside. The problem with that is it's not biblical. You see, 
I am a person. You are a person. You're not a body and a spirit. You're a unit. You are one. You can't separate those things. They are one. What happens to your body affects your spirit. What happens to your spirit affects your body. they're, They're not bifurcated. They're not two things stuck out in different poles, but they're together. They're one thing. And what their culture said was, as long as no one gets hurt, it's fine. And maybe in theirs, it didn't even matter if somebody got hurt. It's just a physical thing. And physically, pleasure is a good thing. And, you know, what happens to our bodies, it's, it's not a big deal because they're going to perish anyway. And one day it's going to be gone and the soul's what's going to be living. To be separated from the body is to be set free. That was Greek thinking. The problem is, is they're one. The problem is my inner self and my outer self are one and the same. The emotions that come from the inner self affect the outer self and vice versa. And if you need a little little illustration of that, I'll give you one straight from the Bible. 2 Samuel chapter 13. It's the story of two two brothers and a sister. Two brothers and a sister. So these two brothers, they have a sister, and the sister's name's Tamar. Tamar is the sister to Amnon and Absalom, the two sons of David. They're half-brothers. So Amnon is desperately in love with his sister Tamar. Desperately in love. His desire for her is driving him to the depths of despair. And so his friend says, look, you're the king's son. Here's what you do. Pretend to be sick. Have him bring your sister in to cook you bread. Problem solved. So he does. He says, I feel, I feel horrible. The only thing that will make me feel better is, is to see my sister Tamar. So Tamar is his sister. I imagine she goes in not really suspecting a whole lot. After all, he's a brother, right? She goes in, he sends everybody out, and he violates her. She begs him, don't do this, don't do this. This is a vile thing. This should never happen in Israel. Just speak to my father and he will let you marry me. He doesn't listen. When he's done, he kicks her out of the room. And the scripture says that he hated her with a hatred more intense than the love he had for her. We can have a whole sermon on that. Tamar goes out, destitute, destitute. She rips the daughter's robe, the daughter of the king. She rips her robe, her ornamented robe, weeping. 
And her brother Absalom sees. And he says, don't be distraught, my sister. Don't let this bother you. Go to my home. You'll be fine. Now, Absalom kills Amnon. Tamar lives in Absalom's house, a desolate, terribly broken lady. Because you see, the spirit and the body aren't separate, are they? You see, you can't do something on that level without it affecting the person. Paul said, don't unite yourself with a prostitute. Because you become one. Because you see the spirit and the body are one. And there's something that happens there. And we have to hold fast to God's plan for marriage and intimacy. Regardless of what our culture says. Because sex outside of marriage is sin. It's sin. And it causes us harm. In Romans chapter 1, the scripture is about midway through. So you know you've you've departed from me. And because your sexual practices have gotten so bad, he said, I've given your women an unnatural desire for other women. And your men are burning with lust for one another. And God says, that's a punishment. That's not a pleasure. So if we come in, that's the thing that he has. And, and, and you know, you wonder and go, well, you know, the, the battle within. Look, that's the battle we face. That's our battle. You say, oh, no, you know, we're, we're not quite there. You know, well, yeah, yeah, we are. I want you to think a minute. Just think for a moment. We'll start at the extreme. Here's the extreme. Pornography. What is it? It's the exploitation of men and women. That's all it is. It's sexual exploitation. It's looking in on something that God made to be beautiful and intimate between a husband and a wife and watching it for entertainment. Because you see, that's not something anybody needs to watch, right? It's the most intimate of relationships. And we don't invite people to watch. That's weird, right? Yet, I would venture a guess to say that a third of the people in our church struggle with it. If you talk to uh, somebody who works on a college campus in a ministry, they will say 
They'll tell you, every young man who comes in my office, I assume, struggles with pornography. They don't wonder if they do. They just say, I just take it right off the top that they do because it's ubiquitous. You know why? Because you don't have to go to the corner grocery store to buy it. It's right there. And here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I created you for more. I created you for more than that. I created you for a pleasure that's beyond that. I created you for something that is beautiful. And you're selling out. So there's one. And if you struggle with that, I want to encourage you, you contact me. Look, I'll, I'll connect you up with, with, with help because you need help. And don't be ashamed to contact me. Here's another one. You flip on the TV at night. And, and the drama's on, you know. And, and there's the guy and the girl. And you just know, you know, they're just made for each other. They just, I mean, it's like the perfect Hallmark movie. It's happening. And, and you know, you know that, um, <clears throat> you know, you just know that these two people, they, they need to be together. But the circumstances just seem to always go wrong. And finally, finally, it changes. The music changes in the background. They're drawn together. And they disappear into the bedroom. And what's your thought? I'm so glad they got together. Oh, this is good. Or is it, this is horrible. This is horrible. They've just violated God's plan and purpose for human sexuality. Why is that? Why, why are we so easily distracted and turned? Because you see, we look at one extreme and go, oh, that's just gross and ugly. And we look at the other and go, oh. Because everything that we look at, everything that we see, commercials and everything else, is driven by a false understanding of our sexuality. And this is what Jesus is saying. He's saying, look, get it together, folks. Get it together. I've given you something that is amazing. And I want you to experience it like that. Because <clears throat> anything else is fornication. And, and, you know, fornication, you know, fornication, what exactly does that mean? It means illicit sex. It means sex outside of a man and a woman inside of marriage. That's what it means. Anything. And any time we go outside of that, it ultimately causes us harm. Idolatry causes us harm. Sexual immorality causes us harm. Because God didn't design us for that. He didn't make us for that. And then we go on to the battle for truth. We have the battle for the cult, with the culture, the battle within, 
And that's the one that we're facing today. And then we have the battle for truth. And the battle for truth, he says, therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. This is for the battle for truth. This is the battle that that we face. He's saying, repent, turn, leave it behind, turn away from that, turn away from the, the gods of the culture, turn away from the false gods that you're worshiping, and live in the place that I made and created you to be. Experience me the way that I made you to experience me and to experience relationships. Change the way that you think. That's what repent means. It means to change the way you think and turn and act differently, to live differently. So, Let's, let's come in and let's talk about Jesus. You know, Jesus is, if you talk about Jesus and the culture, people go, oh, I love Jesus. Well, they, they have an idea of Jesus. They're Jesus in the Jesus of the Bible. The Jesus of the Bible is excessively intolerant. He is the most intolerant God you will ever find that has ever happened. And he's the eternal God, the God of all creation. He is absolutely intolerant when it comes to sin And you know why? Because sin enslaves us. It enslaves us. But Jesus sets us free, and that's an incredible freedom. This is what he comes. It brings human flourishing. This is why God has designed us the way he has. This is why God has set things up the way that they are. This is why the Bible tells us this is the way that we're to live in our ethics. It's not because he doesn't want us to have any fun. It's because he says, in there, inside those boundaries you will find a beautiful life. Human flourishing. It leads to human flourishing. When we have these ethics that take place, it leads to strong families. It leads to our children feeling safe and loved. It leads to something that's beyond what our culture offers. And Jesus said that the truth will set us free. In John 8, 31 and 32, it says, So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, if you abide in my word, what does it mean to abide in? To abide in means to live inside of. It means that the word of God oozes out of you. It means that you live your life in line with God's word. If you abide in my word, You are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Jesus said, the closer you get to me, the closer you get to living according to the word of God, the freer you become. We see the boundaries that God has given to us as something that's constraining. And what what Jesus tells us is, no, it's, it's not constraining at all. It's freedom. It is freedom to a beautiful life, to a life that is amazing. Jesus is telling them, and he's telling us to quit eating at the table of lesser gods. That's what he's saying. He's saying, look, quit eating at the table of lesser gods. Quit participating with lesser gods. He's saying, come to me and eat the bread of heaven as you walk with me through this life and into his presence. That's the promise. He says, look, he says, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone with a new name on it, so on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. 
So he's telling us to come to him. In, in Isaiah chapter 55, verse 2, he says, Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. In Isaiah 55, 2, you could go to Romans chapter 1. It's saying the same thing. God's saying, look, you, you've, you've, you've colored outside the line so much. You've gone so far over here that, that, that you're just going off into, into stuff that never was intended. And you're being consumed and, and inflamed by it. And, and, and this is what he's saying in Isaiah 55, 800 years before. He said, why do you spend on stuff that won't satisfy? Why do you do that? Listen to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Jesus is saying, overcome it all and trust him. And he will give us hidden manna. Um, he will satisfy us. You know, in about three weeks, you're going to have a thing called a Thanksgiving meal, probably, most likely. And you know what happens after that Thanksgiving meal? You sit down satisfied. I mean, like, maybe so satisfied that you don't want to move. Like, really good satisfied. And what Jesus is saying is, that the hidden manna that he gives us satisfies. It satisfies us. And he says, you give us a white stone with a new name on it. Isaiah 62, 2, he says, The nations shall see, shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory, and you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. Um, so as we come in and, and we talk about the hidden manna, you know, the bread from heaven, and, and then we come in and, and we talk about this white stone. The white stone is a little more difficult to uh, kind of figure. There, there are several different takes on it. A lot of different people have given different theories, and, and the truth of the matter is they're all good. Nobody really knows. But a couple of interesting ones. One, when they would have a court trial during that day, each of the jurors would be given a black stone and a white stone. A white stone meant acquitted, not guilty. So they say, you know what? Jesus said, <clears throat> when we repent and follow him and we conquer, that we have this white stone that says we're not guilty. Or it could be the stone that was divided and the names of two people were written on it and as they parted and, and it would be to, to remember the other one, that this relationship is, is not going to be violated or broken to, as a reminder of that. Or it could be the white stone that was given to the one who conquered, who vict the victor of a game. And that white stone would give him entrance into certain places and, and signifying that as we are victorious over sin, as we turn to Christ and he brings the victory in our lives, that we have access to him. I, you know, there, there are several different ones. We could talk about all of it. But um, regardless what it is, it boils down to this, that he knows us and we know him. This is what he's saying. He's saying, look, you know me and I know you. And I'm going to satisfy you. And he promises to work in us. And our role is to constantly evaluate everything through, through his word. And that leads to a life full of joy and purpose. So this is the thing coming in here. As, as we come in today and we look for us, you know, we could look and we could talk about Pergamum forever and all the problems in Pergamum and all the problems in the culture. And we could talk about everything wrong in our culture and, and, and all of that. But... I think it really is more important that we talk about the battle for the mind. 
And the battle for the mind is the battle within, and it's the battle that we face today. And as we look at it and we look at sin, do we call it out? Do we call it out? Not that we're harsh and ugly and mean to each other or anything, but when we see sin, do we see it for what it is? As something that destroys us, something that enslaves us, something that takes us away from God, something that breaks our families apart, something that will endanger our children and, and their well-being. Do we see it in that, in, in that terms? And do we, do we come in and, and understand that Jesus, he's the one who's, who's paid the penalty for that? You see, when we look at sin, we all have, it's, it's something that's, that's common to all of us. Every single one of us. Look, when Jesus died on the cross and he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He didn't need anybody else's sin but mine for that to happen to him. Mine. Mine and mine alone would have been enough to separate him. Now multiply that times billions. That's the love of God. We're all at the same level when it comes to this and in, in the same need. And the need is, is that we repent and change the way we think and, and don't nibble around the edges with sin, but to call it what it is, to address it in our lives, whatever it is, whatever, you're, whatever it is that you struggle with, whatever, whatever that thing is in your life that we all have that we don't want to tell anybody about, so we keep it hidden. And when it's in the dark, you know, bad things grow in the dark. You know, it gets moldy and all that other good stuff. And that's what happens with our sin. But when we acknowledge it and we place it before Jesus, what does he tell us? He doesn't say, I'm not going to accept you. I can't believe you at that. I, that is the grossest thing. No, he doesn't do any of that. You know what he says? He says, welcome home. Welcome home. I'm so glad. Let me help you. Let me walk with you through this. Let me give you the tools you need to overcome. That's the promise of the gospel. That's the hope. It's not about coming in and talking about everything that's wrong. It's coming in and saying that everything that's right is found in Christ. And anything else is a cheap substitute that will rob us of dignity and joy. And as we come and we come to him, he's here to help us conquer, conquer. And our role in it all is to look in, look in, filter it through the word of God and repent from the things that destroy us and turn to him and receive the blessing that only he can give. So I want to encourage you today. You know what? I don't know, I don't know what's going on in your life. I mean, there, there are enough people in here that we all got different stuff going on. But I know one thing. Every single one of us has stuff that we struggle with. And we need to turn it over to God on a daily basis. And, and none of us ever arrive. That's the other thing. You know what? As soon as we, get, we conquer one thing, there'll be something else. There'll be something else. It's, it's, we're constantly becoming more and more and more like Christ. And it's just, you know, he's, he's changing us and shaping us and molding us to be more and more and more and more like him. 
So it just stands to reason. But I want to encourage you to, to pray and to turn to him and to allow him to do what only he can do in your life and, and empower you to do that because that's the promise. The promise that God made to this church in Pergamum, he makes to us today. And that is to him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna and a stone with a name nobody knows but me. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we thank you. For the hope that we have in Jesus, knowing that on our own we can never ever fix our sin, we can never fix our brokenness. But you've done it for us. And you offer us a life beyond anything that we could ever imagine. Father, we pray that you would help us to see our lives the way that you see them and to trust you to give us joy beyond measure joy that only comes through you a joy that can't be taken away and a hope that endures for all eternity Father we thank you we pray this in Jesus name Amen